and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vandorf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. A few years ago, uh, I took a chance on a film that a friend of mine said was just terrific and I would love it, and it was called Short Term 12, and indeed, it became one of my favorite movies of the decade. You can usually find it on one streaming platform or another. It's, it's often on Netflix. It's a movie about a young woman who works with uh, teenagers who come from troubled homes, and sort of tries to help them adjust and get ready to live life outside of this group home setting. And it was based on a lot of the real-life experiences of its director, Dustin Daniel Cretton. And he's back now with another movie about a young woman trying to navigate a complicated life, once again starring the wonderful Brie Larson. And that movie's called The Glass Castle. It's based on the book by Jeanette Wells that was a, a runaway bestseller, a great story based on her own life of living with her parents in kind of a ramshackle, free-spirited way that ultimately led to some real troubles for for her and her sisters and brother. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Dustin because I think he's he's one of the most promising young filmmakers working right now. Hi Dustin, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh so we were we were kind of chatting before the show started and you said that you were going to leave from here. We we're in Santa Monica. You were going to leave from here to go surfing and I have to know like where's the best surfing in Southern California. I'm not a surfer, as you can probably tell, but I, like, I always feel like I could be if I really tried. I think anybody could be. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I mean, you can, there's so many great waves up and down this, this coast right around here, but I, a lot of times I go, my friend from, from Maui lives right next to El Porto. So he lives right, right next to the, the Chevron plant actually. <laughs> and, and we go, we go surfing out there. It's pretty good. Yeah. Today I'm probably going to go down to San Onofre about an hour south of here and surf with a, a different friend from Maui. Cool. Cool. When I, I've known a, a, a handful of filmmakers who also like surfing, what sort of connection do you see between the two practices or is, is there none? Well, one one practice is extremely stressful, and the other one is really good for, <laughs> for de-stressing. I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I I think at least for me, surfing is one of the ways that allows my my brain to turn off, or because mm -hmm. um, you know when you're either catching a wave or getting completely pounded underwater by a wave, there's your your you know your brain can't be thinking about the script you're writing in that moment. And I yeah. think it's a nice reset. Yeah, yeah. So uh, your most recent film, the one that's uh, coming out, I think, or just came out when this episode releases, is uh, The Glass Castle. Tell me a little about, that was such a huge book. Tell me a little about like finding the story you wanted to tell uh, in this book that a lot of people have read, a lot of people know, but also is like a big book where you can't put everything on screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is my first adaptation, so mm -hmm. I... It was my first time reading a book with the thought in the back of my mind that I'm going to try to turn this into a movie, which was really exciting, um, but also extremely daunting because I, w I wasn't uh, super familiar with the book before I read, read it three years ago. And I, I just immediately fell so in love with it. And the more I fell in love with it, the more afraid I was that I was going to screw it up. So that, you know, battling those, those internal emotions is, is a huge part, I think, of the creative process. Do you remember a moment when, like, you found one scene or one moment that, like, you were like, okay, that's the key to what I'm trying to do? I mean, I, I, I think a lot of it for me um, was a a stacking up of the scenes between Jeanette and her dad because mm -hmm. that that was 
the book covers that as as one big storyline, but it also covers Jeanette's relationship to her mom, her relationship to her neighbors, um, friends that she meets in different towns, and it, it covers so much ground that that I I wish we could put it all into a movie, and maybe we'll do like a mini series <laughs> at some point. But and anytime there was a scene between Jeanette and Rex in the book, something about that felt. Uh, really, really personal to me. I just personally really connected with those moments because they were, that that relationship was just so familiarly complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, And even though there was never a moment that I doubted the love between those two characters, it it was always so, that love just came across in so many violently different ways and um that that became the thing that we focused on and it was it was also a huge relief when i told Jeanette that that was what i felt the heart of this book was and she immediately said thank goodness because that's what i think too oh excellent one of the problems that adapting things to film often has is that it it literalizes you know what's in your head like you're reading the book and you have this picture and now, uh, if you see the Glass Castle, you the film, the only person you get to see is Jeanette Brie Larson. The only person you get to see is Rex, is Woody Harrelson, etc. And, like, to one of the problems with that with this book is it could make, like, their childhood with all these quote-unquote adventures seem a little too fun, I think. And the book is about how that was ultimately detrimental in a lot of ways. How did you sort of keep that balance of... There was a time when these kids thought this was great fun, and then eventually they realized it had really hurt them in some ways. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to act like our movie is not doing what you're saying because <laughs> it definitely is going to for some people. So, um, But I, I do hope that our, our movie, you know, I, I, try to, I try to think of movies as a separate entity to the book, as, right. as something that hopefully is not the total picture that you're going to get of that story. Hopefully it inspires you to go back and revisit the book. And, but... I, I do think that that balance of of fun and um, trauma that the kids went through throughout their life that we that is pretty evident in the book is is something that we we really tried to capture in this movie um, and it's told specifically through the point of view of Jeanette and in the beginning of the movie she's one hundred percent in with every adventure and idea that her dad is spewing out to her. She's she just loves it, eating yeah. it up. And but as the movie progresses, you know, her brain develops and she starts to see the holes and she starts to see that maybe dad isn't going to do all these beautiful things that he's saying he's going to do. Um and that is like the the story that we tried, you know, tried our our best to portray. Yeah. I guess if, if someone were to have, like, a link between this and Short Term 12, like, the link would be these are stories about how people deal with trauma in some ways. Um, every character in the Glass Castle is trying to overcome something, including Rex, we find out. Um, what what interests you about exploring how people process, like, really terrible things that happen to them? It interests me personally because uh, um, I, I think, Seeing other people do that, to go through something that's really difficult in their life and seeing them um, learn how to process through it and live with it, not create some kind of naive fantasy world where everything is happy. Like I, I 
really connect with the idea that life is shit and life is beautiful. Mm. And if you ignore one or the other, you are creating a a, a false sense of of reality. And um, and I think in any moment you can find you can find a reason to giggle at the irony of a terrible situation. Um, but I, I also think that that you can do the flip side and be living in a reality that is acting like everything's okay when it's not. And mm-hmm. so I, I do think that Jeanette encapsulates those those two things in it. And for me personally, exploring a world that's doing that is kind of a form of therapy for myself. Right, right. You saying that sort of triggered for me, I'm thinking about how in our political climate right now, people are very inclined to say either everything is shit or everything is beautiful, like depending on what side of the line you're on. Uh, but this movie also like talks about that rural poverty that we heard so much about last year uh, in in kind of a way that we don't often see in movies. And I'm wondering, I don't know when you were in production on this, but it had to have been coinciding with the election somehow. And I'm wondering like if you felt that sort of the influence of news from the world at large creeping in. Completely. I mean, when we were actually shooting in Welch, West Virginia, which mm-hmm. was once a a prominent mining town. Um, and I mean, they're still mining, mining coal there, but you can see it's, it's a beautiful place to visit, but you can see the remnants of a town that was once thriving. You right. can see three story, beautiful three story homes that are now half burnt because it seems like there might've been a meth explosion at some mm-hmm. point or something, but, and meeting the, the people there who, I went to, I went and had a beer out of uh, like a small, it wasn't even a bar. They were serving, they were serving beer out of a cooler. But I talked to a couple of locals there who, as soon as I started talking to them about coal, they're geniuses in yeah. regards to coal and rocks. And they're telling me, they were telling me all the different ways that a, like if if you touch a rock and it's, and it crumbles in this way, you got to get the fuck out of that tunnel or if they, they're, they they just had so much knowledge about this one thing that they can't do anymore. And it is sad, you know, and, and on one hand, it, it's sad that that industry has, has died. It's also sad that there's not an emphasis on trying to create something else mm-hmm. for, for those people there. Because if there was something else, they would be so happily involved with it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so... I mean, I'm not a Trump supporter, but but it, it was an eye-opening experience to be able to understand why they were. Yeah, yeah. How long did you film in Welch? It was a short trip, so we we filmed all of our exteriors and things in about two, three, three days. Two wow. Days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes when, a, a, like, a, I remember this when I was a, a kid, uh, Dances with Wolves was filming in South Dakota where I grew up. And people were like, wow, there's a big movie here. Kevin Costner's here. Like, did you have some of that when you were in town? Was there some of that, like, oh, my God, Hollywood's here? For sure. I mean, we we had um, the the Welch Daily News where Jeanette actually, uh, when she was in high school, she, was, she wrote and worked at the, the Welch Daily News. But they put out... You know, they put out an article and we were there and and they actually were pretty instrumental in helping us get a, a bunch of extras to come out for a, a football a high school football game that just has a brief cameo in the movie. Actually, one of Jeanette's childhood classmates from high school is now 
the coach of a of a cheerleading squad, mm. and she got the old um, cheerleading outfits that wow. they had back at, <laughs> back during the time that Jeanette was at high school, and she taught all her girls how to do the the maroon wave from <laughs> like nineteen sixty maroon wave chants, and so so we were able to emulate like this this uh, moment from from the 1960s in a very cheap yeah. <laughs> indie way. <laughs> yeah, tell me tell me a little bit about that because your your background is in doing shorts and then in doing kind of independent features. And like this movie obviously has a bigger scale. Like you do exterior shooting in a lot of places and there's, you know, there's, there's a scope to it that, that like Short Term 12 didn't have. But it also, it sounds like you found some ways to like make that cost effective. Tell me a little bit about funding a movie like this in a day and age when people aren't really paying for movies like this? I mean, I think it is an asset to have grown up uh, or grown up in the, this industry doing things completely um, on on our own, like having to just figure out how to do it. So, and I, and that asset is like when when a studio or or some somebody says that they we can't do something because of money it's very easy to say well yes we can and we're we'll do it like this no right. no money and and that in a lot of ways uh was how we did that welch section it was it was just primarily me and my dp brett and we i mean we spent a full day just ourselves just he and i ourselves going around getting shots that we needed and then when we sh- when we started shooting it was primarily just him with the camera on his on his shoulder Bree showed up for a day. We'd go get our shots, and then we moved on. Yeah. Um, and it that part of it started off our shoot, and it was a cool temperature to to set for everybody to see like um, that this is the mentality of the way that we can shoot this movie. And it you know it's not only you have to work your ass off, but it's super fun to mm. work that way because yeah. nobody stops. There's not a bunch of people sitting around. Everybody's just like, like Sharon Seymour, my our our production designer was there, but she was, you know, she she was doing everything. She had no hands under her. So we're we're like, oh, we want to shoot that house. We're driving by a house. Oh, we want to shoot that house. Sharon goes and meets the the owners of the house at, and starts like carrying giant sheets of tin and covering up logos that are outside that wouldn't be period specific. <laughs> but we're, it, was a, it was a really fun way to start off the shoot. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, tell me a little bit about both this and Short Term 12 have had a lot of actors in the frame at a lot of times. Like this, you have a lot of shots of the family in the car. You've got four kids, two parents. And that's stuff that I don't see a lot anymore in movies that I really liked from, like, movies from the 40s and 50s of, like, just lots of actors acting off each other in the frame. Tell me about how, how you approach blocking, how you approach, like, getting people in the frame together and yet still giving them all room to have their performance seen, you know? That's I mean, that's a very interesting observation that I that I didn't really <laughs> – I wasn't – I wasn't really cognitively th- thinking that it was just practically we're telling a story about a, a family and and the family operates as a unit. So um, that that just practically became how we would shoot it. Um, anytime we're going into a scene, uh, I do meticulously pre-plan things and have a, a shot, at least a shot list. Typically, I'll, I'll have digital storyboards before we go into a scene. And almost always, those storyboards don't end up being what we actually do because I 
I like to start from that point and then have the actors come in and just start messing around before we start rolling and, and just kind of see what they do and then new ideas come. And if those ideas are better than what we had planned before, we just go with those. Yeah, yeah. You've worked with, with Brie twice now. Um, and the thing I love about her as an actor is she can do a tonal shift like that, like just in a second. She uh, In this movie, there's a scene where she's kind of like her boyfriend's doing a thing, she's not into it, and then in a second she's into it, and it's just like perfect like uh when you when those moments come like what are those conversations like with her is that, i assume that she just does it but maybe maybe not you know you're right i mean she does there i mean breeze breeze incredibly smart and um and thoughtful and and actually has great control over her craft um but i think a part of her technique and her craft is somehow um, being allowing herself to be free enough to surprise even herself. Mm -hmm. And so we typically don't do a ton of talking before. I mean, there's been a few times where I've tried to go up and, you know, try to explain what I'm thinking. And and she she's like, let's just do it. <laughs> and then we do it. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that's what I was thinking, <laughs> trying to trying to tell you um but yeah that's my that's my favorite part of her do you do a lot of rehearsal with actors do you do a lot of like we're all going to get in the room and work through this scene together i got to do a little bit more in this one mm -hmm. i mean i didn't get to i mean i i would prefer to i love it i don't um because i discover things in rehearsal but in this one we got to get people together and and rehearsing with these actors was so fun we got we went over to breeze where Bree was staying before you know, the week before we started shooting and Woody and Naomi were there and Ella was there and we, you know, we we did a variety of just playing games and doing just messing around to get to know each other. But we actually did do a couple scenes just improvised through, one of which was the big fight scene that Rex and Rosemary have and where, where Rosemary kind of ends up fly, flying out the window for a little bit. And we we, we did a improvisation of that scene and it actually changed the scene I, I went and rewrote it because of something that Naomi did by instinct that was not in the script but it just turned the scene into something so much more interesting than than I than Andrew and I had originally written it do you what do you sort of discover like you said you discovered this moment but what what's helpful about improvisation to like find the core of a scene even if it goes off from what the script says I mean, there there's something that the subconscious can create um, that that I think calculated thought is just impossible of reaching. I, I mean, I I do think as you're writing, you're trying to tap into that same sort of you know sporadic creativity, um, but it's more difficult. Um, and, and I think it just comes more naturally when you have other humans and you're just reacting to each other. Mm -hmm. So in, in that in that moment, there is like a, a moment where the scene where written the scene ends. Um, they've had this big argument. There's a big like out the window, back inside, big kind of explosion happens, and then it settles, and a couple lines are said, and, and the scene ended. But um, in in the rehearsal, right when it was supposed to end. Naomi just got another like vault of energy and jumped up and tackled Woody onto the onto the couch and started punching him in the chest and it was really like kind of violent when I was watching it but 
And then it went from punching to struggling to laughing to kissing. And I was like, wow, that's like the best. That just describes their relationship so well. Yeah, yeah. For some directors, it's very hard to learn to sort of let go and trust actors. Was it hard for you to do that? Or or do you just instinctively like to see what they're going to do? Now it's easy. But yes, that's, I mean, it's really hard when you're starting out because you don't have access to, I mean, you typically don't have access to really good actors. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very easy to to think, oh, I I suck at directing because I can't, these, these scenes aren't working. But sometimes it's just like actors that, I mean, for me, we were just, we weren't typically using actors who are experienced doing that type of uh, flow and improvisation. So we are much more stringent of just look here and mm-hmm. tilt your head to the right, which is a terrible way to direct. And it's honestly not very fun. And so it was, it was like the, the moment I started to loosen up and instead of try to capture the thing that I had in my head, um, I, I, I now try to capture just whatever is in front of the camera and whatever is happening in the best way that we can. The process actually became much more enjoyable. What's your approach to to casting? Because you put Brie on the radar of a lot of people. Um, I knew about her from television. So, (laughs) but but like everybody in Short Term 12 now is going on to have like successful careers. All the kids in this movie, it's so hard to find good kid actors sometimes. All the kids in this movie are just like natural and right there. Um, obviously, Woody Harrelson and Naomi Watts, like, they're great. Like, you don't, have to, you don't have to reach too far for that. But, like, what's your approach to finding actors for some of these parts where they need to be great, but also you don't necessarily know where to start? I mean, a, a huge part of the process is just, like, stressing the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> like, casting is so stressful for me because it, you, you're starting at a place— I mean, especially because I, I after— living in the script phase for so long. What a lot of people don't really realize, especially actors, when they walk into a casting room and the director or writer-director is there, it's the first time that that they are listening to those words being performed. And they are nervous as fuck, you know? And so a lot of actors come in thinking that they're nervous, but I'm just like, this actor's going to know that I suck at writing. (laughs) And... Um, and a lot, a big part of it is like, is anybody going to be able to do this scene? Like, mm-hmm. or or are these words going to work for anybody? And it it is just complete stress for me until the right person comes in and does it, and I just relax and I'm so relieved, and I'm just like, we have to have that person, right? Um, and, and it's, it's fairly pretty evident, which is something that I wish every actor could also know that it's not, it's so much not about skill. I mean, at a certain level, actors are just great and, and it's, but, but that, that really doesn't great actors come in and when they're not right for the part, I still feel tense. But when the right person, like when Ella came in and started reading those lines and, just making me tear up and forgetting that I had written that we had written any of it. That's when I when I feel just you know so excited and will do anything to get that person. How how old is Ella? She's now twelve. Was eleven when okay. we were shooting. Yeah, and she's uh, this is Ella Anderson. We're talking about she's she's great, um, and she works a lot opposite Woody, especially in the movie. Child 
actors, child performances, especially in a movie where you have a lot of adult subject matter, that can be like hard to navigate. What What's the process of working with someone like that to get what you need, but also like, I guess, protect their innocence is the only way I can think of to say it. I mean, yes. Come, I, mean, I think about that, you know, all the time. It, it is... It is one of the few industries where we're allowed child labor. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so trying not to make it feel like it's a job is, is I think, a big part of maybe my responsibility as just a moral person. But also I think it does help in, in getting the performances that we want. And with a lot of them, I think it's just it, it's really wonderful if they have great parents mm-hmm. and and parents who you can talk to before and say how to you know this this particular scene has some he- heavy subject matter in it. Is there anything that we should know about that's sensitive? What's the best way to talk to them? Like, do you want to be in the room when we're doing it? Just whatever it takes to make the kids feel comfortable is what we will, what we'll do. But in regards to Ella, you know she's she is a eleven year old kid, but she's also more mature than most of my friends um, and and so and her mom is just kick-ass and so cool and so open and honest and they have such a good relationship and so everything was just talking to her like I talked to anybody and yeah, she, yeah it was very easy tell me sort of about the flip side of the the actual parents which is the on-screen parents like how do you facilitate a relationship between obviously you can't do it it has to be them but like how do you build that space where they can have a believable parent-child relationship even though they're faking it faking it (laughs) i mean i've heard like crazy stories where there are actors that are supposed to have chemistry in a movie but they actually hate each other so much that they refuse to be on set at the same time so they have to cover scenes on separate days with coverage like you know (laughs) and and thank god i haven't had to do that because it's Chemistry is very difficult to fake, and especially a, a family. the The feeling of a family, I think, is very difficult to fake if if the people actually don't like each other. Um, because love in a family isn't just infatuation or passion, or you know, it's it's this this complicated, bubbly like that you can say sh- whatever horrible shit to somebody but behind that there's still love you know mm-hmm. and that I think I just lucked out that all of literally everybody in this cast got along naturally mm-hmm. yeah. um, they they all had a similar vibe sense of humor a lot of ton of laughter and it, it, it just made it very very easy to work with so you're saying neither uh Neither Woody nor Bree nor uh, Naomi were WC Fields and saying they would never work with children or dogs. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were, I mean, they're incredible with children. Mm-hmm. I've never, I mean, all, all of them, Woody, Woody is, I mean, if, if you mention just the word Woody to any of these kids, they'll just start screaming and laughing because they love him so much. Yeah. And that, that was extremely helpful to us. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you uh, do do like a shot list. You do a lot of pre-planning and that actually surprised me because not because I think you're like sloppy or anything, but because like (laughs) your films have a very loose feel, like they almost feel improvised in some ways. Like they feel very like in the moment and and this is all just happening. How do you get that feeling uh, while still being like meticulous? My pre-planning is primarily 
in case I have a panic attack and my brain shuts down and I can't think of any idea. So, I, <laughs> so then I can just look at a paper and be like, we're going to do this. <laughs> but it, it actually frees up my brain in order to potentially get it to the next level. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for me, a, a storyboard is is really a, a map of what a scene means and what is one way of covering it um, that that is you know, inspired by what this scene is trying to do. And if if in that moment something happens that surprises us and a new idea comes and the camera whips over to catch it or whatever, I, I, I hope and pray for those moments. Um, because I, I mean, that is the thing that we're always trying to get is just something that feels alive and yeah. and authentic. Um, whatever the tone of the scene happens to be, whether it's really intense, we don't want it to be so intense that it doesn't feel real. Or, or if they're laughing and joking, we don't want these jokes to be so jokey that they don't feel real. Right. And so everything is trying to, you know, trying to emulate my experience of reality uh, or the actor's experience of, of reality as best we can. It's you mentioned this in our earlier interview um, for the print piece, but you said it's like it's about getting most of the way there, but like sometimes not pushing all the way over into like the fullest expression of that emotion. Yeah, because I mean th- this is this is something that uh, I actually learned from a, a, fil- a film student at AFI that I that I was supposed to be mentoring, but <laughs> but he was teaching me stuff. Um, but he said that the definition of melodrama, was it melodrama or was it sentimentality? I don't know. Something, one of those words that are connected to emotions that are false. Okay. And he said it's, it's when uh, the emotions that are happening on screen are not matching the emotions that the audience is feeling. Right. And then it, it feels false. And so uh, I... I've always sort of thought about that, but I've never really heard it defined in that way. And we really found that in through the editing process with, with Nat Sanders, um, where certain scenes, if we were pushing too hard emotionally with the performances, it wasn't allowing the audience to feel anything. Mm. And when we started to to pull back on that, then you know the, the viewers, I think, were able to project themselves a little more into the scene. How do you? control for that though because every audience member is going to be different every critic's going to be different like and at a certain point you know the material so well that like you're in it so you're like oh yeah of course people are going to feel this right here like i have that all the time with my writing like even my criticism i'll like write a thing and then my editor will be like this makes no sense i'll be like it's perfect (laughs) damn it isn't that so weird (laughs) i i feel like i mean has there been a, a a psychological um evaluation of that creative process because i don't I, f- I feel the same way. Yeah. In editing, I mean, I feel like a crazy person. Mm-hmm. I I feel so certain of of things that just seem so obvious, and then I show it to an audience, and fifty percent of them have no, don't aren't even close to what I thought they were how they would react to something. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's that is the insanity of making movies is trying to get feedback. I mean, for me, I, I'm not making I'm not making avant-garde movies. I want these films and these stories to connect with people. So uh, we we show it to a lot of people, and we get all kinds of feedback. And it's filtering through and saying, "Oh, there's truth in that one. 
oh, that one, this this type of person is never going to like our movie. We'll just not, we'll ignore that one. But it's filtering through and trying to decide what to take and what to throw away. For a lot of creative people, it's hard to take feedback. It's hard to take notes. How did you get to a place where you could, even if you still have that initial reaction of, no, you're wrong? After every note session or a test screening, I will, I will have a day of, depression <laughs> and going going surfing or doing something um saying they're all wrong and then once the dust settles in my brain i start to realize oh shit they're right mm. about this and this and this and then it flips from feeling self-pity and depression to inspiration of making this thing a little better yeah. and I I hate that part of the process, but I know that I have to do it. Otherwise, I'm going to be putting out first drafts with nothing, you know, forcing through my ego for first drafts of things that could have been better. Do you uh, remember a specific point or note on any of your films where somebody told you something and maybe you resisted it at first, but then you realized, okay, yeah, this is what I need to do? Um or it clued you into a solution to a problem you didn't realize was there. I mean, that happens daily yeah. on these things. So, I mean, there was a funny note in the beginning in in one of our screenings that was from multiple people that that the family was laughing too much, mm. um, so much that it was irritating people by the end of the of the screening. And I was like, "What is that about?" And and um, after. After we we kind of analyzed it, like we we realized that that was part of that thing that where even though the family thought something was funny and they were all laughing at it, nobody else thought that that was funny. So right. Whatever they were doing, and it was like a it was like an inside walls joke that I thought was like I liked watching the walls laugh about something that I you know didn't think anyone else could relate to. But there's so many of them that people were just like becoming distanced from those characters. So as soon as we started. But that's one of a thousand things like that. <laughs> when you're adapting a story from someone's life, um, in this case, Jeanette Walls, what kind of relationship do you build with that person? And how much do you worry about screwing it up? <laughs> <laughs> I, I worry about screwing it up all the time. Uh, and and I, I do think that building that relationship is one way of feeling a little better about, about not screwing it up. Because... She, and I and I know it's impo- it's not always possible to have a relationship like this because Jeanette happens to be very open minded, very understanding the the process of of um, adapting something and understanding that this is a a new art piece, you know, and helping me knowing the limitations of of taking something from whatever I don't I don't know if it's five hundred pages down to one hundred page double space screenplay mm-hmm. um, and helping me find that core of of the story that could fit into the, into this screenplay um, was you know it was it was she was an incredible asset to have and she's become a really wonderful friend that I feel like I, you know I, I I feel like I'd do anything for wonderful um, tell me a little bit about how you wound up here uh, making movies. You're from a small town in Hawaii. I'm, I'm right on that. Um, and like any time that somebody is from like a really small town and they end up in Los Angeles, like I, I always think like that's 
not every, that doesn't happen to everybody. So tell me about how, how you got from there to here. It was a, a lot of, you know, thousands of random, I didn't have a vision as a kid of doing this. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I knew that I loved playing make-believe my whole life. There's six kids in my family. We're all really tight. And we grew up being <laughs> purposefully deprived of TV by my mom. Um, and so we were forced to go outside and we'd create plays together and perform them for the audience of mom and do, you know, martial arts routines. And we, I, I mean, any we we're just creating our own entertainment and that, that turned into making movies when I my grandma let me borrow her VHS camera when I was about eleven, mm. and and then we just started making stupid disappearing trick movie <laughs> movies about magicians or whatever, and and I knew I loved it, I knew, and I so I was always the the guy who was finding an excuse to make a little video about a trip or getting my friends together to do some stupid little skit. But growing up on Maui, it was never, it was never an option in my head of something to pursue. Um, and it, it took everything for me to even just get off the island. I thought I would just, I wasn't planning on leaving. I thought I would just get a job there's nothing wrong with this. Um, I thought I would just stay there, get a job, and live a wonderful life surfing or fishing and being outside and not defining my life by what I do, which I think is a beautiful way to live. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I think life kind of just t- took me to San Diego because all my friends were leaving. I just wanted to go. And I went to a small um, college in San Diego called Point Loma Nazarene University. They had a uh, I found out when I was there that they had they had a degree in mass communications that had one video production class, and I was like, oh, I'll switch from a nursing major to a comm major so I can take a video class. I didn't even know that was possible. And then it wasn't till my senior year that I made my first short film and played it in front of my classroom and saw them react emotionally to this thing that I did, and then I was hooked. Yeah. Um, hooked on making movies, not hooked on pursuing it as a career, but hooked on making movies. And the career sort of was a byproduct of just doing it, doing this hobby for long enough. It it had to have taken a while to sort of get to the point where you were making features. So you made a lot of shorts. Like, how did you keep going in that time when it was largely self-generated, you know? I did wedding videos to mm. pay the bills. Um, you know, I'd I always chose the job that I did to to make money. Um, I always chose something that gave my brain the freedom to write or plan an, a, a movie on the weekends. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to jump into the industry and be working, you know, twelve hours a day and be stressed out, so stressed out that I couldn't create stuff on the side. I took you know, more <laughs> shittier jobs that just I didn't have to think much so I could right. I could create. And, I mean, I think for me, survival through all the ups and downs that continue to happen to me in this industry, um, it depends on the reminding of myself daily why I do this um, and reminding myself daily of, of the of the joy that comes from, you know, just writing something and being on set with your friends and 
watching other people in their element do these things that uh, that blow you away and and then taking this thing that you've worked on for so long and sitting in an audience and feeling them react to it um th- those are all the things that that I know that I can control um and regardless of box office or what getting accepted or rejected into a festival or critical response to something I I I know what I can control and and that process for me every time I make it made a movie I feel like I come out a better person in the end right. and and that to me is worth it to keep trying to do this you funneled some of your own experiences into short term 12 um from what I've read, uh, what, what was that? Was that like a healing process to like write about that stuff or like a way to get more in touch with what that time in your life had meant to you? Yeah, the, the short-term 12 started off, the initial idea started off when I was trying to think of what to do for my thesis project. And up until that point, uh, honestly, I was like a huge like Wes Anderson fan. And and uh, I think everything up until that point had was, was like a, a poor man's, um, try, copycat of Wes Anderson movies, and they're extremely composed and and heightened reality, and not not based on anything real. And so this was an experiment for me to try to do something that was based on something real. And I was going through old journals that I had written while I was working at a group home down in San Diego, and based based on a couple of the stories that I had written. I tried to stream, I streamed together a short film and that became the short, short term 12. Excellent. Um, who, what are, you mentioned Wes Anderson. What are the films, filmmakers, who are the people that have inspired you or still inspire you? But, you know, they can be long, long gone even. I had a late start into independent cinema because I, out, you know, out on Maui, only big blockbusters would, would, would make it out there. And so I grew up on, you know, I, I grew up on Spielberg and all the huge, huge movies that, that came out, and including, you know, I, was a, I also grew up on, like, police, all the police academies. We had, <laughs> like, my dad would rent every single one, and we'd, we'd watch them over and over. But by the, by the time I came out here and I went, it was my senior year of, of college— that was, like, the time that Bottle Rocket— like, like, there'd be someone in a dorm who had a Bottle Rocket VHS tape— and Boondock Saints was, and and we'd go in, into people's rooms and watch these movies that were just different, you know. Yeah. And um, and the the first one that just blew me away was um, Lars von Trier's Breaking the Waves, mm-hmm. and I watched that in a classroom, and that was just one of those movies that hit hit me and stayed with me for weeks afterwards, and and uh, it was you know. It was, it was actually an icky, terrible feeling that it left me with. For, but right. but I, it was one of these realizations of like that that is that is something that cinema can do, um, and it it became you know that that's when I started devouring that type of movies. It was also the heyday of focus features and things, and so I was I got uh, just addicted to all of those movies that were coming out at that time. Yeah, yeah. You, so you grew up on on Hawaii, uh, on Maui, rather, um, and uh, the experience a lot of mainland Americans have with Hawaii is either filtered through film or TV or people's vacation photos. 
What's the thing that we don't know about Hawaii that, like, you sort of wish we did? That's a great question. Um, Hawaii is, you know, it, it really is so much more than than the postcards that you see. And the reality of living on Maui um, it is, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, I think it matches the, the tone of, of the Glass Castle and Jeanette's life. It, it is a mixture of of extreme beauty um, and a whole lot of hardship that I think you just do not see when you are visiting Hawaii. And, you know, I experienced it, honestly, the, for the first time when I visited Kauai um, earlier this year. And I just w- rented a uh, an Airbnb and went there. And we were ha- my, my wife and I were hanging out for the first three days. And we were just like, where where are all the locals? Mm-hmm. Like I, I just see. It feels like I'm in California. Everywhere I go, it's just um, wh- white people everywhere. Right. And I just happened to have booked a place that was in a community that was all, you know, all transplants living or visiting, and um, and that's typically what how people experience the islands. And uh, we just kind of drove around the corner, and we found the local neighborhoods that were a completely different sector of society um, the living in low income housing and there's you know there's a huge homeless population in Hawaii too and so that that side of the island uh, of island life is very much a reality that you know we we could talk forever about the complicated relationship that Hawaii Hawaii has with the United States well, yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Do you think there's anybody uh, like fiction or movies or anything that have gotten it closer to right? Yeah, I think I, I really enjoyed The Descendants. Um, I mean, I, I I think The Descendants got like the uh, upper class Hawaii pretty well. And they had little glimpses of lower class, what, what typical Hawaii that I grew up in. They had little glimpses of it in the movie. But um, I haven't fully seen my my life experience projected yet. Yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully I'll I'll be able to change that someday. You've made a, a couple of movies now. Well, I, I haven't seen your debut, for which I apologize. I no, usually no. try to see everything. <laughs> but uh but you've made a couple of movies now that are really about people we don't usually see in movies. They're off on the under the radar, kind of on the fringes of society in some ways. And uh, the next film you're making, just from the synopsis of it, sounds like it kind of plays in that same ballpark. What is What do you find interesting or invigorating about working in those sorts of spaces? I do feel attracted to stories in general, whether it's in film or, or books or just whatever someone's telling me, stories about just something I haven't heard before. And um, so I'm naturally drawn to these I guess these stories of of underrepresented communities or people and and I'm you know I'm I'm also I feel like I'm I'm drawn to stories about people who are very different from me but also have a a familiarity that makes me feel like they are me you know mm-hmm. their our life experiences is so drastically different but the same and and it makes me feel connected to to that person or that life experience. And because for me, a, a huge part 
a huge benefit, personal benefit to being a filmmaker and a screenwriter is having the ability to explore something that I don't know much about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's how I, I'm able to grow as a, as a person. So, I mean, it's also terrifying because when I start a project, I, I feel incredibly inadequate. Um, and because a huge part of that process is allowing myself to trust my curiosity that that will I will figure something out and and hopefully being an outsider to the thing that I'm exploring allows me to make that that story relatable to other people who have not who aren't aren't um, in it you know and that at least that's my hope. This is a question we we talk about a lot now, which is how people who are outside a certain uh, group or or class or whatever can tell stories about that without, like, appropriating it or without, like, uh, appropriating their pain or struggle or whatever. Um, And it seems to me like you do a really great job of telling these stories without, like, being manipulative or, or, you know, cloying or whatever Um, or trading in on that struggle for, you know, easy emotion do you have like a research process or how do you, how do you get into the heads of, again, as an outsider, how do you get into the heads of people that grew up in vastly different circumstances? My research process has been pretty different for everything that I've worked on. Uh, but I mean, I, you know, it's, I, I always try to read as much as I can on the subject that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I try to meet as many people as I can who have actually experienced something like that. When you're doing a book like The Glass Castle, so much of it was just building a relationship with Jeanette and hearing what um, what her 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 memories from her lips uh, were were actually so much more effective even than reading them on the page. You know, I, I was working on a script a couple years ago that a lot of it took place in the in the blind community, mm. and so I I went um, I went and volunteered at a at the Braille Institute here in LA, and got to meet a lot of people, and and went to uh, you know went to a camp, a summer camp for for it was an adventure camp for blind people, and and got to sit in that community and meet people, and and it's just I mean it's so simple, but it's so quickly that you learn firsthand that we are all the same, mm-hmm. like these things that seem so foreign. I mean it's so silly, but I used to not know what to do if i if i bumped into a blind person who yeah. was maybe who i could see was maybe in trouble or was trying to cross the street or like i just didn't know how to react but it's like spending five, 5 minutes or an hour with these people who are just a beautiful community of cussing drinking like <laughs> normal people who and when they say like don't fucking worry just come and talk to me yeah. i'm just a person you know like it and but being able to when i when i get to that level um that that's when i think the the research becomes uh fun <laughs> and and that the characters become real and i fall in love with them so much that I mean, I don't know what the end product ends up being, but so much that I want more than anything to do right by them. Mm. And and that's what I'm trying to do. So, and emotional manipulation or manipulating of, of 
of plot or story if it's if it is potentially damaging to that community or that or that character uh, that's always something that I'm asking and trying to avoid and hopefully we 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 do <laughs> but I'm, I'm not perfect uh, just from kind of Googling around, it looks like you have uh, a film project. Uh, you're work, you, you, you had mentioned earlier that you're working on the script for a film project, and it looks like you might also have a TV project in the works. But what, what sort of are, are those, and what are, what are you, where are you sort of at in the process of working on those? Andrew, who I wrote, co-wrote uh, Glass Castle with, and I are, are adapting a book called Just Mercy, which is another memoir written by um, Brian Stevenson, who is a public defense attorney who moved down to the South um, Alabama in the late 80s and started representing people on death row. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, simil- in a lot of similar ways to, to The Glass Castle, what I connected with in this book isn't only um, the, the, the relevant subject matter, but the way that, that Brian interacts with his clients and um, and his staff and his motivation for doing what he did does is so rooted in genuine love um, and care. And so much of this book is doing exactly what I what I'm talking about is taking a a person who's on death row who's a who's a murderer has all these labels connected to them on the surface. And as he digs deeper and allows you to understand their backstory and you understand um, the predicament that they're in, they become so human that you fall in love with them re- regardless. And you, and you can, and he allows you to feel con- like truly connected to somebody that I think um, is, they're, they're just so easy to write off. And that, that's what I, you know, that, that's what I love about this book. Yeah. Um, but we're we're finishing the adaptation for that, and uh, it's it's hopefully going to be the next thing that that I do. The TV project is something with that that I'm developing with, you know, one of my favorite directors in the world right now, Ryan Coogler. He's great, um, yeah. yeah, and and we're uh, a few years back, like after short term, I was hanging out with with Ryan at um, at a. I think we're, it was up at Skywalker, actually. Um, it was for some event for the L.A. Film Festival. And we were, I, was, I was talking to him about my experience working at a group home, and he, he actually has experience working at a, um, at a juvenile hall up in Oakland. And, and then we just started talking about trying to create um, a, a series that, uh, that follows, follows kids through the system. And that that you're able to learn how you know how the system interacts with these teenagers who who honestly are incapable of having a voice in um, in in society because they're not of age to vote or make any decisions that actually affect them. And so so watching watching through character development how how the system uh, interacts with them was something that we're we're trying to create right now. Great, great. Uh, how do you get these things made? Because the the Hollywood system is so skewed toward giant movies or like tiny movies, and yours are kind of right in the middle right now. How, how does how does how are you making that happen? I mean, right now I'm getting I'm getting uh, like the movies on the movie side. I'm able to make these things because of Gil Netter, yeah. um, who you know he's done some 
great movies, but and always sort of in this middle of the. Or, I mean, he doesn't do giant blockbusters. He he does very big, intimate movies. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're heading into the end of the show, but I did want to ask you. You said earlier that you hope to come through every movie as a better person. As you exit the glass castle, like what do you think you learned about filmmaking, and then also about just yourself from having made it? Great question. I mean, I, I mean, filmmaking. The lessons are are endless. I mean, I, I suppose one one lesson is that no matter where I am in my career, as soon as I start a new project, I'm going to always feel like I'm back at square one, mm. and that doesn't have to be a negative thing because <laughs> I I am a I am a self doubter, and I and I do think that there is I'm learning that there is a certain there, there's a certain strength in being a self-doubter and that there, there is, you know, there's definitely going way too far. But mm-hmm. I do think that that self-doubt uh, can be an asset for me as well. Through this, uh, I mean, we talked about a lot of the lessons that I was learning through this already, but I, I do think that it cemented my, my idea that relationship and community is a huge part of the aesthetic of the stories that I that I want to tell um, and um, that those relationships need to be real for me um, I need to at least be constantly trying to cultivate them off screen with my actors and with my with my crew um, in order for that type of of energy to be on screen yeah. and that is something that I think going into the studio system, it, it, it's easy for me, like this kid from Maui, to to be like, um, yeah, whatever the studio wants. Like, oh, this is how professionals do it. Like, okay, oh, we need to hire this professional. He he or she happens to be an asshole, but they're really good at what they do. So, and it is easy for me to just be like, okay, okay. But the few times that I have done that, it's been devastating to the general vibe of, and and I think it's a bad business move too. I, I think it can potentially ruin the types of stories that we're trying to tell. So being able to be at a, to understand that and be able to put my foot down so much that, and and express how important that is so much that, if I was forced to work with a bunch of assholes for a movie, I would walk, hmm. even yeah. if it was like the best project in the world and they were the most talented people in the world. Yeah. If I was if I was not um, able to create that type of co- collaboration, I, I just it's completely it, it is completely not worth it to me. Sure. Like relationship always beats art in my in my mind. Cool, cool. Well, we ask every guest some of the same questions the end of the podcast oh. so here we go here we go it's uh it's, i don't know what these questions are well that's okay that's okay they're uh some people find them difficult i don't know why um, <laughs> the first one is what's like the last movie or tv show you watched last book you read last album you listened to just the last pop culture thing you took in and what did you think of it i watched the last episode of game of thrones okay kick ass <laughs> <laughs> you like that show i i really do yeah yeah, yeah. it's uh yeah, it's like a extremely extremely complicated. I mean, I don't know how come, but it's a extremely entertaining soap opera. Yeah, um, but yeah, I, lo- I love it. Great, great. Uh, the next one is: What is the upcoming movie you're most looking forward to? Not one of uh, yours. Yes, not one, not one of mine. Jeez, um, I feel like I'm so in the hole. 
what are what are some movies coming out? I don't. Oh, P.T. Anderson's new movie. Yeah, yeah, that was going to be my answer. If cannot, you, yeah. cannot wait for that movie. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have a Do you have a favorite of his films? You know, Magnolia is my favorite. Really, I know I'm kind of an underdog there, but Magnolia was the first P.T. Anderson movie that I saw. Mm-hmm. It, that was another one of those ones that just stayed with me. And I, yeah, I'm still, anytime Magnolia's on, if it's on TV or if someone has it on, I just stop what I'm doing and can't get my eyes off the screen. Well, maybe the answer to this question will be the same then, but what's what's your favorite movie ever made? Your favorite one that you've ever seen? Oh, um, or a couple. Yeah, maybe, you know, maybe Hoop Dreams. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I think that's, I think that might be the one. You've made you've made a documentary before. Like, what uh, does that documentary world appeal to you, or were you not as into it? I I love documentaries. I init- yeah. I mean, my first feature was a documentary, mm-hmm. um, and I and I do think that's sort of been the journey that I've been on is learning to relove the idea of of capturing moments that will never happen again, mm. and that's kind of what I what I strive to do in performances and. Is is capture things that that are not so uh, scripted or composed, and that that they ha- they have a life that you'll just never capture again. Cool. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Dustin. Thank you for having me. Great questions. Uh, the Glass Castle is out in theaters. Short Term Twelve is probably on some streaming platform somewhere. Thank you. <laughs> I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulrich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. And our studio this week was the wonderful podcast studio at Village Workspaces in Santa Monica, California. Our editor is Peter Leonard, and our recording engineer is Che Brooks. As always, if you could rate, review, or subscribe to the show on your podcasting platform of choice, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher, or you saw us like broadcast it on the moon at night and you thought that was kind of cool, please, if you leave a review, if you rate us, if you subscribe to us, it helps us climb the rankings, and it helps us get the great guests we've been getting to keep coming in. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with another interview with someone from the world of arts and entertainment, someone who I think is interesting. Until then, I sure hope they figure out how to get the air conditioning on in our studio. Studio.